I'm such a nerd. Today is November 7th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Oki, Naganago, Mekoche, Chastokom Aki. My name is Red Thunder Woman. My married English name is Michelle Robinson, and I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south and the opposed U.S. Canadian border are the Blackfeet. North of the border are the Sitsika, Ghanai, and Bagani of the Confederacy. These lands were signed um, on September 22nd, 1877 with Treaty 7. Signatures that include Blackfoot Confederacy, the Wesley, Chiniki, Bearspawn Nations of the Stony, and the Dene from Sutina. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as keepers of these lands, all non-Indigenous or treaty partners with government signing on your path. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellowknives Dene. My father is so Canadian. I am a daughter of the Mayflower and a daughter of the American Revolution while having an Indian Act and Post status card. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the hair people, not hair as in your, you know, head hair, as in like Arctic hair, as in rabbit, because my people always showed up in rabbit skin. But they were also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene nation is a visitor to this area of Clincho Tine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning many horse town named after the Calgary Stampede. And I am actually in Lethbridge, which is a place that the Blackfoot acknowledge as the Black Hills. So land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. Do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous, but I share what I know as I walk the red road. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, previous donors, for showing your support. If you have valued listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your comments or questions. Also, giving a review helps on whatever medium you're listening from. I have a YouTube channel where you can go and subscribe. You can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts and pin posts on social media. And with that, I'm going to welcome back my friend, longtime friend, Chad Cowie. And would you like to introduce yourself in your way? Right. Ani, Chadindishnakas, Pemadashko Dayang, Dunjava, Montreal, Megwadoda, a tick dodam. So I think since the last time I was on here, there's been some things that I found out more about my family as I continue through my 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 process of decolonization and relearning a lot of what was denied to my family. So for for those who are joining and um and, and listening uh, to translate into English, uh, as I mentioned, my name is Chad, uh, Chad Cowie, specifically. My, my mother is Beverly Cowie. My grandparents are George Cowie Jr. and Francis Sproul. And my great-grandfather is George Cowie Sr. This is the side that my Anishinaabe, my Michisagig Anishinaabe uh, roots come through. Um, the Michisagig are one of the nations that are a part of the Anishinaabe grouping, uh, which includes the Chippewa, the Potawatomi, the Odawa, the, the Algonquin to an extent as well. Um, 
I am from the community of, as Canada would refer to, is Hiawatha First Nation. I think in the past I have been on it, said Minoman Canning. Um, in uh, over the last year of doing research work for my community, the other five Mississauga communities, there's been some um, realization and unearthing of things such as what has been the traditional traditional name uh, of the area that my community is actually located on, which is the Madash Kodea, which means something to do with the, um, where the, where the, um, where the grass burns or where the grass dances as it looks in the sun setting uh, because of wild rice. Um, I am joining you from Ganiaga territory. I am here in uh, the Montreal area, specifically Le Perot. Um, I am also Caribou Clan. In the past, I would have said Mayangan Dodum, but again, in doing some of this research and listening to some, uh, some stuff that goes way back to the 1820s, um, realizing that my family is actually Caribou Clan, and so trying to correct that. I am a PhD candidate at the University of Alberta, uh, focusing in political science. I do Canadian comparative politics and Indigenous politics, um, mostly Indigenous politics, but uh, in the field of political science, they have yet to be able to make Indigenous politics a subfield. So that's why I'm labeled as Canadian comparative. I am um, a researcher and course instructor currently at uh, McGill University and will be relocating to the University of Toronto uh, in July of 2022 to start a tenure stream position there um, within the political science department at uh, the Scarborough campus and uh, at the downtown campus in Toronto. Um, Congratulations. So yeah, that's that's my background. Thank you very much. Miigwech, miigwech. Yeah. Oh, you're welcome. We were lucky enough to see your wedding not too far from there. I'm so excited to uh, visit your work one day again. Oh, that's so exciting. Well, I'm really glad that you're on because you were unfortunately in some conservative circles this week. So I thought I'd give you some space to just be you. Um, <laughs> I, I listened this morning to your um, conversation with some Edmontonian uh, conservative talk radio folks and uh, uh, you know it's so cringy I got an interview today from somebody and uh, you know when they don't know anything about indigenous issues and they they frame questions in such awful ways and you're like okay let's correct that one and I felt like you almost had to like educate him on hey did you know that there's like over 600 nations and you know and not everybody is you know thinking the same and all of this like it felt like that a lot so I, I wanted to ask you what your thoughts were of being interviewed out here in uh, Edmonton and and hear what your what you thought of that whole interview so for a few things, for those who are, who are listening, my area of research that I'm currently working on is whether or not First Nations, Inuit and Métis people participating in Canadian federal electoral politics or electoral politics and Canadian institutions um, can bring change. Is there an effect by Indigenous people being involved in it? So my, my main focus has been on the federal elections and specifically the 2015. But I've been asked in, in, in recent elections to also discuss on it because of the fact that I follow it, I understand what's going on. And when we talk about this, it tends to always be through the lens of uh, can he, Indigenous people simply, Indigenous peoples, First Nations, Inuit and Métis people simply being one group under a Canadian citizenship lens, uh, rather than, and, and there's little discussion about why they, that, that's not the way to look at this. You have to look at it far more different perspectives and that there's varying perspectives and very diverse perspectives across it, um, depending on the nation, depending on the region, depending on the treaty area, and depending on the ideology. And again, not all people in one nation or one community are going to follow the same ideology. That's not how it works. We sometimes forget when we're talking about Indigenous peoples, especially First Nations and Inuit, that 
consensus means that you know you have to all be the same when consensus is more about coming to a middle road in order to make everyone uh, content and okay to be able to go forward. Um, so it, it doesn't mean that everyone has to think the same way and be the same way, but that you know there has to be a middle way to go forward so that way everyone is okay. Uh, rather than just, you know, a simple majority or survival of the fittest or, you know, tyranny of the majority, which is what we sometimes have in our, um, in our, in our, in our system today, or what we see as the early forms of, of governments with, with democracy in, in the Western sense attached to the 1800s and, and the early 1900s, where it still was very dominant by a certain side and a certain type of person. Um, so when talking with people, so I've done a lot of interviews, especially since early September because of the, the, the federal election. And there was some interest about Indigenous people participating because of the, the, the fine, the, not the fine, sorry, the confirmations of burials at some of the residential schools so far. And then bringing that, that, that conversation back to what reconciliation is supposed to mean. So what Michelle is referring to is that earlier this week, I did an interview. I, I wouldn't say necessarily Michelle, he, he, he's conservative. I, I don't know what the, 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 um, the, the 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 presenter or the host of the show was but he, he it was just a, a lack of understanding and, and sometimes when we have this talk about indigenous people and canada's indigenous people i've heard this from from people of all party stripes like i've heard sure. it across the political spectrum this is not just one side it's 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 a thing that just happens and we we see how some people respond to it after 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 this interview and I corrected it like I like I, I had sent Michelle a message because I had uh, some people's party of Canada people all of a sudden start following me on on my social media which luckily only one is one where they can just electively follow me the other ones I have to give permission um, but it was it was a little bit um, jarring <laughs> but um, so while I was on the most recent one it was just Canada's uh, Indigenous peoples was. Uh, Indi Canada's Indigenous people was said a couple of times and so I had to correct that because one of my things I want to do especially as as an academic and someone who does this and someone who doesn't like when I'm labeled as someone's property because when we say Canada's Indigenous people that is giving a sense of ownership when we say Quebec's Aboriginal people or when we say it, First Nations people of Alberta or First Nations people of Ontario or Métis people of Saskatchewan and the Métis are a bit of a different story because that's how they form themselves as well. So let's let's exclude the Métis when we're talking about this. They do have, they do go by the Métis of Saskatchewan or Métis of Alberta, but like the Inuit of Ottawa or Ottawa's Inuit, you know, there's a problem with when we say it that way. And it gives a sense of not only ownership, but it also gives the sense that these these organizations existed first or these provinces and, and, and Canada existed first when that was obviously not the case. They came later um, on the backs and on the de deconstruction and on the outline of, um, of a lot of First Nations and Inuit and Métis structures. Um, so trying to remind people to, to not do that, it, that is key. And um, unfortunately, you know, this, this was something I had said in the email before. I'm like, don't say Canada's Indigenous people, but I don't know how, if, the, if that had gotten around. So um, after the, after the second time in the interview, I, I corrected it. <laughs> yeah, no, that it's tough. I, I just felt like you were giving more education, um, like Indigenous 101, instead of actually talking about the subject you wanted, that it was supposed to be about and whether or not really Indigenous people um, can vote, what the barriers are, et cetera, et cetera. But we didn't really even get to that in that interview because of course, this is somebody who doesn't have any language on how to talk to somebody Indigenous. And it's just, uh, I wanted so much more for you. I wanted you to have an opportunity to really, you know, talk about the barriers because um, 
so now Chad and I know each other from politics already. So I, I feel like what a lot of people don't understand is how political Indigenous are. And we have to be out of survival. We have to be, we have to know uh, municipal politics, provincial politics, or territorial. Um, and we have to know federal politics. We have to know uh, Indian Act politics. We have to know our nation's politics and traditional governance system. You know, so like we have to know all these things. And I feel like Canadians, like they don't have to know anything. And I mean, I only say that because I've been door knocking as you have. And uh, when you go to the door, the average Canadian, they don't even know the difference between like municipal politics and provincial politics, let alone the nuances of all of our um, different Indigenous politics that we have to uh, adapt within under the system of the Indian Act and under the system of um, Canada in general. And I don't think, you know, folks even understand that. So Anyway, I know that um, for you talking about uh, nations voting, one of the things that you were bringing up was some of the Eastern nations that just don't even believe in uh, voting in the Canadian system because of the treaty that was made at the time of basically, you know, you do your thing, we'll do our thing. And um, even though Canada hasn't honored their treaty in any capacity, you know, they, the indigenous folks of that nation still honor the treaty and say no we're, we're not going to vote because that's not what we agreed to in treaty so i just wanted you to um, have an opportunity to unpack that more and uh, talk about some of the things that you think are relevant and then maybe conversely because we never got there on that other show like if there's some folks that you know purposely vote and why on purpose and i'll just let you kind of discuss that because this is your area of expertise one and two because i can finally just talk to somebody about it without having to explain it <laughs> so where would you like me to start because it's it's been a whirlwind over the last bit for me because i did have a, an article come out talking about this and it's it's a very intro article talking about the different ways that we have to consider when we're talking about and deconstructing that indigenous term because as we know indigenous is pan it's it's, it's a blanket term yes. um and we need to remember that indigenous includes first nations Indian and metis and metis have various different political um provincial organizations or regional organizations the inuit have four different regions and then we're talking about over 50 different nations when we're talking about first nations as well nations and confederacies um so when we talk about 600 nations, what we're really talking about is those 600 communities. And some of those communities, yes, they are their own nations. The more and more out, more out west, out, out this way, there's a little bit more connection. And, and the whole process of um, in the east, dividing them into smaller entities was done on purpose because unlike out west, so when we're talking about colonization out east, it was purposely done to make us into smaller little regions or smaller little entities so that way it was easier to keep control over us and keep us apart from each other so that's where you have us divided into smaller communities in a sense and then kept from being able to talk to each other especially within our own nations so my nation uh the Mississaugas it's six six different communities under the Indian Act and um that includes uh, a lot of traditional territory that is what we would call southern Ontario southeastern Ontario um and um it's the same thing for a lot of the the, the 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 nations and the confederacies they were purposely divided up and then and then when the Indian came and 
into place. It was utilized to be able to keep us from being able to talk to each other. My community and the other six Mississauga communities, they were formed in the 1820s, 1830s. They were originally formed as communities. You had little plans for how they were going to have a church. They were going to have this. Uh, my community and the other ones worked with um, the Methodist Church to do this. There was an actual company from the United States called the New England company that came up to help us with designing our, our, our towns because that's what it was. They were supposed to be villages. Mm-hmm. Um, and so from 1820s until the 1870s, we freely moved amongst our communities. We would go back and forth between the communities because there was a lot of, of doing that, especially because a lot of people had family from the other communities and marrying into other communities in a sense, um, uh, marrying into other clans is more of the correct way to say it back then. Um, but that obviously was not benefiting um, colonization was not benefiting the, the settlers who were arriving into what we would call Southern Ontario. So with the 1876 Indian Act, it made it more hard for us to do that. It made it illegal for us to go back, back and forth between communities. It made us legal to even leave the communities. It made us made our uh, made it so that way, obviously, um, women from our communities, if they married out, they were no longer a part of the community that they were born into um, and stuff like that. Out West, you see a lot more putting groups together. So you have some communities that are a mix of different, different communities, or you, you have them put more closer together. And then there's usually been a, well, there was usually a fort not too far from some of, the, some of these areas. And that was done on purpose. It was a lot easier by the time that the railroad connected to the to, 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 to British Columbia or to territory that we call British Columbia uh, in, in the Canadian sense um, to put them in more bigger groups and then build a fort near them because it was a lot easier to keep control over them. While out east, it was easier to keep us apart. Uh, so that way we would be able to outnumber them because at one time between Six Nations and some of the Mississauga people near Toronto, that outnumbered the settlers and that was very frightful for um, for, 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 for the settlers back in uh, just after the War of 1812. Um, so, so going through some of that stuff and understanding that history is very important to understanding why there's there's differences in how participation happens and that not every not every nation has it and that each each group also comes into coming becoming Canadians uh, and getting Canadian citizenship at, at citizenship at different times, but also that the story of how that happens is not one that's necessarily looked at in the sense of because they were considered equal. It was usually because there was a sense of something that was needed or that they were in the way. Um, so for instance, if we talk about Métis, Métis through the Indian, I mean, through the Manitoba Act, they get the rights to vote Métis men in 1870 because of the adoption of the Manitoba Act, which brings Manitoba into as a, the fifth province of Canada. Um, originally, Macdonald did not want Manitoba as a province. They did not want it because they wanted it to become a colony of Canada. They wanted the prairies to be a colony. So if you see how the natural resources rules exist for the prairies, it's not very beneficial. There's some issues out there. Um, and I get why those issues are there. And that was done on purpose by some of the early founders. Some of these early founders that the conservatives, especially conservative people really laud for and are like upset that we're wanting to take down their statues. Meanwhile, it was the same people who made the rules for how Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba joined uh, and made it so that way it was disadvantaged in the sense of how it relates to resources. Um, but, you know, that's an inward focusing that they have to figure out. Uh, but when Manitoba became, the idea was to recognize Métis rights. It was to bring them, they, they had to negotiate with, with them. And this was again, because of the Red River uh, um, resistance, not rebellion, resistance, because again, this was before it was even a part of Canada. Um, and um, so there was agreements that were supposed to be there with recognizing language, recognizing culture, the Catholic church was, was to be protected. But right after Manitoba came in, uh, you saw horrible things done in Manitoba towards Métis, where Métis had to flee and go further out in the Saskatchewan uh, river valleys. Um, 
and out towards Alberta. Uh, again, along the, south, uh, the North Saskatchewan River and, and along some of the, the, the Bow River and all that, you see them move out there because they're fleeing what's being done. And you also see Métis people hide their identity. You start seeing themselves, you start seeing themselves calling themselves Francophones or French Canadians because it was a way of protecting themselves and, and, and avoiding persecution. So although citizenship was granted to Métis men and then uh, Métis men in 1870 and then Métis women by 1917 when other women, specifically white women got the right to vote in Canada, um, they weren't identifying that way because it was dangerous to, to, to identify as who they were. They weren't recognized because of what was done to chip away uh, at Métis rights from 18, from the 1880s on. And then you saw the fallout attack on the Métis because of the Northwest resistance. Uh, and the fact that by that time, they didn't need, Canada didn't need to negotiate, which is, again, where we see Riel hung and, and um, Batash attacked and the bell taken and so on. Um, but Métis people get ignored after that, and they're pretty much, they, they have to live as if they're French Canadians. So for a lot of Métis people who are still finding their roots, this is why, this is what comes from this. There's a sense to protect themselves and hide, um, but you don't see necessarily involvement at that level. You saw a few Métis people elected in the 1870s, but then you don't see them elected again until 19, like the 1940s, 1950s. Mm -hmm. So there's a reason for that. Um, the, first pro the first premier of Manitoba was Métis but he identified as French Canadian to protect himself. So like, it's only now coming to a discussion about where this is the case. Mm. Um, so Métis people are brought into Canada, not because of this idea of a multicultural state that's gonna wanna recognize them. It's because they want, that re they want those resources and they want that area. And then they were quickly able to overrun them with um, Anglo-Ontarians. <laughs> and, and uh, then they, they, they democratically, by majority, chipped away at those rights that were supposed to be protected from Métis. Mm. Um, Inuit, uh, they're ignored until the 1920s. They're not even considered anything. And then you see this fight happen in the 1930s, specifically, uh, between the province of Quebec and the Canadian state over who has control over the Inuit. Who's supposed to look after them because they are considered to be original and you know but they, they're, they're not listed under Indian affairs the way first nations people are so you actually see quebec arguing that no it's not their job to look after the Inuit. it's the federal government and the federal government saying no it's quebec it's a province province's jurisdiction so they have no right to to force the federal government to look after them. So you see them actually telling each other that they're in control and this is partially this partially comes about because for quebec um Quebec forms as what was New France. There's no treaties uh, that are formed. What happens is that in the 18, in the late 1800s, in the early 1900s, there are two secessions of territory from the from the um um that 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 come from that comes from uh, what, what's a I'm trying to remember the purchase uh, when Canada purchased pretty much all when they they purchased from the Hudson Bay Company all the territory. Mm. Um, I'm having a blank. Sorry, guys. I'm I've had a very <laughs> long yeah. week. There's been a lot of stuff going on, but. Um, one of the agreements was that Quebec was supposed to formulate treaties with the new territory that was going to come under them, and they never did. Um, so when it came up in the 30s, especially during the Depression, and then there was questions over the Inuit in what is in what we call Nunavik, which is one of the regions of Quebec, uh, one of the regions of Inuit territory, and it's part of what we would call Northern Quebec on a Canadian map. Um, there becomes questions about who's supposed to take care of them and who's supposed to look after um, services for them. Um, Quebec took Canada to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court ruled that no Canada had jurisdiction over them. So not only status Indians, but also Inuit. Um, but so what Canada does right away in the 30s is disband them from having citizenship. So they're not allowed to be citizens, but gives it back to them in the 1950s. In 1950, they get, uh, um, they get the right to vote again. 
uh, and they get the rights to be Canadian citizens. But when we're talking about Inuit getting that right, we need to remember that that wasn't done because it was considered that they would be looked at as equal citizens. It was because they needed to put people in the northern parts of what they claimed as their territory, aka Canada claimed as their territory, because this is when the height of the Cold War starts. This is when the Cold War really kicks off in the 50s. So you have a situation where Inuit are simply used as what we call human flagpoles. They are put, and we see this forced relocation in the 50s, um, where they're forced relocated to places, but it's it's done to, to, to purposely use them as a way of being able to claim sovereignty. And so although they get become Canadian citizens in the 50s, they're also not given the actual rights of a Canadian citizen. Although they have citizenship, they're almost denied the right to vote and participate in Canadian elections until 1979 because they're not given ballot boxes and they're not given the ballots to be able to vote. So there's a good almost uh, almost 30 year period where they're not actually able to even participate because they're not given the rights, the, the, the tools to be able to vote those democratic rights as a citizen of the Canadian state. Uh, First Nations people, uh, we, we know that the whole idea of citizenship to Canada was purposely used as a way to degrade and destroy Indigenous citizenships, putting in those codes about what it means to be able to be deciding how how and who we're supposed to be, uh, telling us legally by Canadian law that we have to be this much or you know, our, our, our father must be it. Um, it was done on purpose. And then, you know, if we wanted to go out and get an education, if we want to do anything, you know, we would lose our right to be who we are. We had to become Canadian citizens. If we wanted to vote, that was the case. But when they give the rights to First Nations people in 1960 on reserve, like when it becomes no longer our need to um, give up your identity, it's done not because of this idea of nation to nation, that it's our territory, that they're looking at a way to federate and go forward as a federation with Indigenous nations, a part of the federation or confederation. Uh, it's done because of socioeconomic things. The idea that Canadian citizenship is what's going to fix everything for us without actually acknowledging that history that's been ignored, without acknowledging that history of how the Canadian state and the Canadian identity for First Nations people was used to destroy and in many cases kill and name and erase them as who they were so these are things that we sometimes forget when we're talking about uh, this and that it's important to understand that when we're talking about that because not all indigenous have the same uh, understanding and there are some first nations especially the dene who were also denied ballot boxes for a long time because in the north there was no point it was too costly or we see in some of the the southern communities because for first nation communities you have to get permission to put to go on to the to, to go on to the the community or going to the community you have to get permission you also have to get elections canada has to get permission to actually give them a ballot box they have to have permission from chief and council so some communities will say no and they will not allow it onto onto their communities because it's not their governance structure um but at the same time we need to remember that it's a chief and council system that's put in place by the indian act so it gets it gets very convoluted and, and difficult and how to go forward on that because again that chief and council system was put in place to deconstruct ours because we weren't utilizing their their structure of governance so um, it, it's stuff that we need to remember when we're looking at this and that it's not it's not a one size fit all or a one story and it's something that I've had to realize while working on my dissertation for for my PhD. Yeah, I really appreciate you giving context and uh, especially the shout out to the um, Inuit because today's International Inuit Day. And uh, so I'm seeing a lot of like positive things being said about the Inuit. Um, obviously, very proud that we have the first Governor General to be Anuk. Uh, to be in a nook and I'm really happy to see that because that was a failed policy that was put forward that didn't go through wasn't voted for but then look at what happened they they put it forward anyway so you know here we are uh, so that makes me happy but on the flip side I also seen that the RCMP shot and killed another 
you know, 22 year old man who was a nook. Um, uh, I don't know all the circumstances, but as you know, if he was white, I'm sure he would have been given a cheeseburger to try to deescalate the situation as opposed to shooting and killing him. So, you know, we have the flip side of that too. Um, so where do I even want to start with this? So first I want to tell you about a book uh, about uh, the Satu Deni and um, Treaty 11 because, uh, you know, obviously I should know more about my own people. Um, I had actually just recently read something. It was uh, this clause that um, was fought for in the Supreme Court. And the whole reason why they were forced to really do Treaty 11 was because they realized that Norman Wells had so much uh, fossil fuels. And then of course, when they recognized the uranium that was in our, our territory, they were like, oh yeah, I guess we're gonna make treaty with these guys. So that was really the basis of it. So I, I'm trying to unpack and learn a little more about my own peoples. And I'm really glad that you, you know, have that opportunity to do it through the university. Um, I would probably really be remiss to not ask you about um, vetting. How do they vet in a university about whether or not somebody is actually First Nation? Oh. <laughs> like, <I don't> God. <laughs> how, do, how, do, how do parties vet who's actually Indigenous? How do they go through this? And how does anywhere how how does anyone who checks off the box um i i i don't know how to say it like because i as as people can see i look i look stereotypically white uh and in canadian context we have and and some in some nations in in the west there is this also built-in belief that you have to look stereotypically what a native person is supposed to to look like according to how it's made to look like uh, like I would never get casted in a, even a, a even a background scene of being a, a native person in some movie because I will not fit in uh, according to their their idea of how it's supposed to be stereotypical and I will always get you know oh you're not native you can't be you know, you know what? you're and not that's part of the reason why I have this whole podcast because people not like the stereotype of what a native is supposed to look like is wrong you know and and yeah. that's the whole thing like people need to see you and go oh he's first nation and need to not question this anymore like just because people have a, this stupid stereotype of what hollywood depicted and like with blackface nonetheless like they, they're not real uh depictions in any well, capacity we see we see now like like we see right now what's going on with i swear to god some some of the people who are, are the pretendians who are getting caught now are are not doing blackface but they're doing reddish brown face because like you have to wonder how they i wish if, uh, I'll, I'll leave it at that because I'm going to say something that I'll probably regret. Yeah, it, it's just it's just shocking, but uh, it's it's hard to understand. I don't know the process. I'm getting I'm just getting more involved with it now to to be able to have more of a say, to be able to assist with making sure things are done properly from the inside and, and making that connection. But um, I have I don't want to say it, it's weird. I have the Canadian legal proof if we go by Canada's legal proof because some people do. I have. You know, I have I have a number that says I am according to Canadian unilateral law, but at the same time, I'm also vouched for by my community. So even if I didn't have that card, my community would vouch for my community vouches for me. So I also have the community recognition. I have the endorsement from from where my lineage comes from. Mm -hmm. So I have both of those. So it it gets it, it helps get over the fact that I, I look very um, stereotypically white because uh, I have two ways to be able to vouch for it in the Canadian context and I only have my community who will vouch for me because I know my lineage I know where I come from 
Um, but then I also have that status card according to Canadian law that says that I'm supposed to be native. Uh, that says, you know, under section 27 of the Indian Act, I am status Indian yeah. because, because my, and it, it, I almost wasn't to be honest, because, because before 1985, if you didn't have your father on your, your birth certificate, they could just assume that it was white. You could look very stereotypically native, but they could still assume that it was, that, that your father was white and you would automatically not be considered native. So if, if a woman did not have a husband's name on that child's birth certificate, they usually were denied. I don't know if it was because I was born in 1984 or what, but I somehow bypassed that because my father's not on, on my, my birth certificate. My father is also, is also not native. He's not, he's not Ojibwe. He's not native at all. Um, but somehow they seemed to, uh, I, I got through <laughs> according to Canadian law. Uh, I don't know if it's because they just didn't bother to, or I don't know, but, yeah. um, but again, there, there's that case, but again, my sister, my, myself and my one cousin are all this, we're, we're a different level of native than my other, my, my one other cousin. It's, it's because of how it works. So, um, I don't know how they go about vouching. Cause like, do you ask for a card? Do you ask for proof? That's, that's difficult to do because, that goes against her. I don't think like that me having that card in my mind is not what makes me uh, Michisagi. What makes me Michisagi is the fact that I, I have lineage. I'm accepted by my community and I do my best to try to bring in our citizenship codes that we followed as a way of living. So that way I can follow that um, because that's what we do. We, for, for a lot of First Nations, especially their way of existing wasn't just based on blood. You could be adopted and you could marry in. Um, so therefore my white husband could be considered Anishinaabe. If this was back in 1600, he could be considered Anishinaabe because he, if you follow the rules of what it meant to be Anishinaabe or what it meant to be Michisagi, it, it was the way that it worked. Um, and the same thing if you came across poor little settler children whose parents might have died of dysentery, if one go by the game or, you know, who died from cholera, they could be adopted in two and they'd be considered fully a part of the community. Blood was only so much. There's other stuff that went alongside of it. So, um, it's, it's a question that I wrestle with because it's, it's also a topic that I get very concerned about how it's looked at because of the assumptions that you have to look a certain way. And it's done by both sides, except one side will use the status cards, uh, the, the, the status card or a card uh, as a way of identifying. And, you know, we, we, we see how bad it can get when you use a number to identify a specific ethnic group. Um, so, and again, like, my number is one six two zero zero four six six zero one. How many other people have to say that? I know I've had a few people who try to be cheeky. They'll 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 name they'll utilize their social insurance number or they'll use their like uh, some other like a work number. And I'm just like, no no no, your your ID number for work is not the same thing. And I have a social insurance number too. I'm like I'm like I have these many documents that that dictate to my life. You might have this many. Yeah. I'm like, and some of these documents override those that you have. So I don't even get them. And as someone who lives off reserve, I don't benefit. I don't get all those rights, but I lose some of those ones that I'm supposed to have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, um, so I don't know how they go vetting, but it, it's, it's, um, it's a, it's a minefield, right. <laughs> I think. And it's conversations that need to be had, but, um, but at the same time, it's, I'm not, uh, I shouldn't, I will not judge a community that might have adopted someone who has no blood connection because it's not my job to do that. A friend of ours yep. corrected me on that a long time ago when I got mad about the fact that Stephen Harper was given a headdress. I made a big comment and my, the, the response to me was, I have no right to make a comment. I'm not from that nation. So it is not my place to dictate if they should be allowed to do that. And they were correct to, to point that out to me. It, it was very wrong of me to do that. 
Um, and it's sometimes what we forget on the Indigenous side that it's not our place to do that in other nations. Yeah, I know. I see that all the time. Uh, same thing with Justin and uh, Sutina. They gave him the name um, One That Keeps Trying. And um, and they gave him a headdress too. And I mean, I see people make fun of it too, just like they do Stephen Harper. Uh, Rachel Notley got a headdress as well. Um, you know, but she, I don't know. I, I don't know what to say. It's hard because we have over six, what, 634 nations, and that's not included here in Inuit. And here we have all of these folks. Communities. That, communities. All these folks <laughs> that have different traditions. And I've seen it regularly. And actually, I asked um, Hal Eagle Tail, I said, well, what do I do when people say this to me? And just be like, when anybody says negative things about Justin having a headdress, just to remind them that that's bad luck, it's a bad medicine. And so I just try to remember that when, when you know, whenever any nation decides to gift, um, you know, a blanket, anything like that. So. Well, same because he's also he's also an honorary member of the Haida Nation, or he was. He has the he has the tattoo, right? And at you, no, I am not necessarily. Like, I'm a recovering liberal, as I joke. I am no longer involved. There's reasons for that. I am uh, very critical about things. Um, I question, for instance, why recently, why uh, uh, former Minister Carolyn Bennett didn't didn't look into the appeal that was done by the Saskatchewan Court over the over exempting the Catholic uh, Church from its uh, duties to, to, to residential school survivors, why it, she didn't look into it in her new position. Um, uh, I, I'm glad that Mark Miller is, but uh, the, like the, there's some faults there that happened under the current government and the previous government. Uh, yes, it's it, you can connect it to the Harbour government, but there was another minister in between Mark Miller and and uh, Valcourt that should have looked into this. And I'm and as someone who was involved at the time between 2016 to 2018, I'm disturbed that I didn't think to bring it up or even know that it happened because it was never brought up to us. Um, so like, I'm also, uh, to those who, who might listen, who are survivors from this, uh, especially from the Catholic churches, I am so sorry. My apologies for the fact that myself and some of us didn't even know to, to question this when we were involved in the Liberal Party as the Indigenous wing, I had no clue. Um, I feel guilt about that because it's something that I should have been able to, to do as a, as a co-chair, but it, there's no but about that. And I would have had I known. But again, as you remember, there was we were dealing with a lot of dumpster fires and a lot of lobbying at us from within. Um, and by within, I don't mean from within the Indigenous wing. I mean from within the party um, and dealing with things that were going on in our ter territories in our own communities and trying to walk that line by being able to help bridge. Um, so it, 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 stuff like that, that you like, it, sorry, I went on a tangent here. <laughs> where, where are we going? Yeah, no, I'm glad you did though. I think it's really important that people see the racism that we face within this colonial construct that we're trying to improve and trying to advocate our rights for and it's in every party it's like colonial politics is colonial politics it doesn't matter what color it's still colonial politics so um yep. you know the fact that people don't really understand it and um uh understand the pressures that we have to try to you know willingly give our time despite all the oppression we're under to these colonial parties and then have them you know really just you know show their racism and uh, disregard what so, we have to say. For sure. And 
that just fully reminded me what I was what I was trying to say. So um, when Steph came up with Site C and all that, and and some people got really angry with Trudeau and were saying he has no right to um, uh, the Haida Nation should revoke their honorary uh, inclusion of him as a as a member of of the nation, and um, and that you know he's a disgrace to have the the Haida tattoo on there. As much as there's a lot of things I'm very critical that has been done, you know, again, it was a reminder to people that that's not their place to say that's the Haida's nation to decide. It's their right to decide to do that. And none of us have a right to make a comment on that. Like his tattoo is because he has a sense of duty to that community. And that's what some of these things are. The headdress, the bringing them in and becoming the members is because it's supposed to give them a sense of duty to do what's good for the community, what's good for the region, what's good for the nation, and what's good by being a part of it, you're supposed to take it because remember our hereditary systems was that that was their job it was to do what was good for everyone and go forward in a good way and remember that they have that place within that society and so that's that's something important to that we need to remember with that stuff so it was again um attacks on him uh, over over stuff and yes i didn't agree with some of them stuff but definitely it was not my place to say hey i don't want him to be a member of my community an honorary member and that's another thing i'll talk to my my community about that and say no and and very vocally be no that doesn't have a right to but i have no right to tell another nation to not do it that's right and we yeah. sometimes as indigenous first nations anyone to make we sometimes forget that we can't tell another nation we are being uh, sometimes no different than non-Indigenous people or settlers with pan-Indigenizedness and assuming that we all are the same when we're not. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up too. Um, so <laughs> let's talk about something really interesting that happened in Alberta. So you and I know, and I don't, I, I cannot speak for my listeners because I don't really understand how I get these downloads, but how I see so little action from the folks who listen. But at the end of the day, I don't think the folks listening understand Canadian politics. Like just, let's just talk Canadian politics only. I don't think they understand the constitution <laughs> and I don't think they understand how um, Senate appointments work. And here, as you know, we had uh, Jason Kenney, our uh, premier tried to pretend like we can do, you know, these Senate elections and they somehow matter and they don't matter, but because Alberta has to be Alberta, we have to do it differently. And this wasn't under just Jason Kenney. Um, previous premiers obviously had this as well, where we do a so-called senator-elect. Yeah. Yep. So um, interestingly enough, though, um, the province uh, elections, Alberta elections, didn't have the approval to go on to certain First Nations. And I don't even know if they put in the effort to go to First, to First Nations anyway. So um, I wanted to kind of unpack this ridiculous Senate thing with you because um, I wanted to tell you because you're my friend. Um, first and foremost, I voted for uh, this guy named uh, uh, Chad Saunders or Jet Thunders was his like stage name. He's like an actor and does the whole music scene and such. He's well respected within the arts community. And he basically made fun of the entire process by using his Jet Thunders persona as like a you know mullet wearing uh guitar playing goofball and um you know i thought it was great <laughs> i'm like this is the type of thing so we're supposed to uh put our vote behind three folks and uh there was um there's this union guy that jason kenny hates with a passion so obviously my vote went to him as well and then there was a third person that she was a brown woman who um eh, 
for all intents and purposes, really seems quite conservative to me and does the so-called model immigrant um, type of thing. So I, I put my vote between these three uh, to see if it would matter, which it didn't, obviously, when I looked at the end results, but, you know, it felt good. It's like a protest for me. So for me, when I vote, it's always a protest. And um, and then when my I did the liberal or, or the liberal sorry the Lethbridge vote I did a breakdown I did a whole podcast on why I voted for who, um, and same with Calgary we did the reconciliation action group put out a survey to a bunch of the candidates very few replied <laughs> very few replied by the deadline um, and most of them were did the incumbent awful. did the did the new mayor respond uh, she did yeah she did respond and. Um, yeah, I, I, I can send you the link actually to her responses because obviously now we have to hold her accountable to what she said. But the thing was, was it wasn't something that made me think, oh, this is a person that gets it. It wasn't like that. No, so. Yeah, we're still in that, let me put it this way. We're still in that, oh my God, I still want to learn and listen to Indigenous people. It's like, no, bitch, we need you to do the solutions we've given you and implement them. And she was on council for four years prior as well, right? So she had an opportunity to demonstrate she's, oh my God, listening and learning and doing. It's just, sorry, it's a, it's a skipping record player. And again, apologize, not, not bored by this, just um, uh, as you know, Michelle, like it's been, I've been a, had a very very busy busy week, and and didn't really get any breaks on on the weekend. But uh, um, this is my break, so this is I'm enjoying this. So thank you. Um, it's 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 what I it's it's that skipped record player situation, right? Like that's what I describe as it because because when you're for a lot of people don't realize for those who do participate who are indigenous who are very active in it, um, not all. But a lot uh, from my experience of being involved and, and then from, from talking to people that when it comes down to how those who, those indigenous peoples who do participate, sometimes, and, and a good chunk of times it comes down to who's the lesser of, not only the who's the lesser evil, but who needs the le least amount of education? Who am I going to, like, who's going to be the one that I don't have to worry about having to explain so much stuff? Who's the one who I don't have to worry about going all the way back to step one with? Uh, and this is how I did all my internal party voting when I was involved with the Liberals. Uh, usually that did not go in my favor. Like, uh, most people who had an understanding of what to do were not the people who got elected over the time that I was involved in the party. Um, there were some some cases where it was was great. Um, uh, the, poly, the policy process under Marianne Campuras was amazing for how much was done with it in the in the part in the liberal party structure but uh then working with 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 um care levitt uh, levis and uh and other people like there's a lot of good there's a lot of good work that was done with kara and, and leanne Barresa when she was a membership organization there's stuff that was known that needed to be done and that always went out and this is where i had an issue with uh someone who ended up becoming more important in the party structure you know the internal i'm not going to say names but um certain uh communications uh, director for a certain party. Uh, I was involved with them on one of the national boards of the party way back in my young days. Um, and the person decided to run for a specific position. Um, 
on the national board. And at the time, it was my first time coming in. I was acclaimed as the co-chair of the Indigenous Wing. It was our job to rebuild the commission. And this was right after the 2015 or the 2011 election. Um, and most of the executive of the national board uh, at the 2012 convention were going to end up being from Toronto or Montreal. I'm not going to say Ontario and Quebec. I'm going to say Toronto and Montreal. Mm. Uh, and it was, there was a, this one position. It was down to um, one person who was from Toronto who made some faux pas uh, uh, over over how to go forward. Uh, so I was not, we weren't, my, my coach and I were voting as the block. We were going to vote together and going to cast our votes the same way because we were looking at that. Who's going to be the less, who's going to be less of a problem for us? Who's going to be, who's going to need the less of the education? Um, but who's also going to understand a little bit more about where we come from? And so we we did end up going with Marianne Campuris because she was bilingual. She was a woman. Um, and there was very few women who were elected to the national board. I think she was the only one. Yes, yeah, she was the only one in 2012. There was the Women's Commission chair. And then there was obviously um, Cherished Clark, who was my co-chair for that first term, um, who, who was also also on the national board. And I'm not talking about writing or district or province, provincial and territorial presence. I'm talking about specifically who was elected as like the VP English, VP French membership um, policy and, and president. So we like that. And Marianne had already done a lot of work, uh, had already done some work prior to like, as the party fell apart, the 2011 election happened. And right after she did a lot of work to try to do stuff with some of us, uh, especially those of us who stayed around and didn't flee the party thinking it was dead in the water. Um, so we opted to go with her because there's just a little bit more benefits and she had already done a lot of work with us. So there was less we were gonna have to teach her. Everyone else who was coming on the national board, there was gonna be a lot of education that had to be done. And we realized that. And as you know, when you came involved, it was very slim pickings of what we were able to do. And again, we had a very, very, very tiny budget to try to rebuild the national commission of a national party. Um, and the person, I, I thought I was good friends with this person. I thought they would be understanding and because I was being honest with them. So I had, you know, I talked to them just, you know, I'm not gonna, we're, I'm not gonna be able to, to endorse you or support you. I'm like, as an incoming co-chair with this other person, we've decided to vote together as one. And so our votes are gonna be going to this person um, because uh, we, we find it, it's the, the best way forward. And then um, what happened after that was I was pretty much told, well, if I if this person won, they would, they would have a difficult time working with me pretty much because I wasn't supporting them. So I got threatened and we had a falling out over that. I was not too unhappy, but then they got into a position where um, they controlled a lot of messaging for the party and made things difficult during my last term. It was one of the reasons why I left the party um, because of how this person did this and it wasn't fair to, to the rest of the commission, but this is stuff that happens. It's, it's, it's the game that gets played. Um, and people don't realize that for us, it's not about, it's not just about being strategic, but it is about what's going to be less exhausting for us. Yes. <laughs> right. Sorry. No, that's exactly yeah. true. That's exactly what happens. And you know, like it's really hard because you want to do good things, but at the end of the day, it, you end up working in these stupid like political minefields and you're not even dealing with the important thing of trying to get, you know, folks elected or trying to, in my case, recruit Indigenous members and have them see themselves in some sort of leadership role in the, in the party. Because in my opinion, the more, you know, folks that we have that are Indigenous within the party structure, like let, it's way less exhausting for me. Um, but that bigger well, picture, it's, it's, they, you have more people that you can rely on and that we can advocate for our communities in a better way. 
Well, and it's, it's somewhat of a privilege when you don't have to take into consideration of who who am I gonna who am I gonna have to educate at least who's gonna be less of who's gonna make it less stressful or who's going to make it more work for us to get stuff done. Yeah. Um, so like that, that's a privilege and that's a privilege that this person didn't realize they had. Um, or they, they did, they just didn't like, yeah, it was, um, it, it was an interesting experience, but that wasn't the only one with it, but it, it's something that we forget from the indigenous side again. So it's exhausting for indigenous people to be involved municipally, provincially, um, federally, um, because this is the other stuff that they go through. And then not only do we have to think that, but then we have to toe that that line that balances out between being a part of the Western structure, the Canadian structure, but also from our communities without causing too much history, being considered a traitor, being considered a turncoat, uh, uh, being called vile names. Called that last week. Being, yeah. <laughs> I was and, called that last week by one of our folks, but you know, they, they weren't coming in a constructive way. So it was just point out, you know, lateral violence as usual. But that it just sucks because it's like you try, but it doesn't mean anybody listens. Like I can't remember the last time I had a constructive conversation within the uh, party structure. You know, uh, right now we're, well, we're still exhausted from having an, another damn election. Now we have to have another one whenever that gets called because we got another minority yeah. government. The most costly cabinet change in Canadian history. <laughs> but, um, but again, there's that there's an identity thing. We kind of talked about this about, and we see this happening. You're talking about the, the internal struggles that are going on. And I think one good fighter, like I I commend people who can do it. I did it for so long and I know the the problems with it. And I know people who get involved are so bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and that they're so committed to it. And it's hard because you can start to see it how how their commitment is that you can see them realizing how much commitment that they have doesn't matter from the structure. But it's a process that they have to go through and they have they still have more energy, but there's a reason why um, there's a reason why there's such a high turnover after a certain point there's those people are not involved there's a reason why my um, teachers who were politically involved were not involved by the time I was a coach here there's a reason why I'm no longer involved now and I'll say quite a few of you because it's not to it's not to again it's not to toot my own horn but quite a few are you quite a few of those of you who are still involved is because of myself and another former co-chair and a couple of other people on my on the, the first executive that I got to be on with recruiting and getting you guys involved and getting you guys excited about it. And I'm, I'm glad to see some of you are still there, but I'm also ready to help hug and and console when it gets too tiring and you realize it's, it's time to, to, to take a rest. <laughs> it will happen for a lot. And, um, and if it doesn't happen, there's other ways that you get taken out. Look what happened to a good friend of ours um, because of shoddy journalism um, and this whole question about what identity means and how you're actually defined as being from, from the nation that you are. Um, it was a very, very horrible journalism job that this person did uh, in regards to a good friend of ours just to be able to make her, her look bad because they were offended by the fact that they got called out by her because they did some bad research. And they furthermore did more bad research by using Canadian legal context to decide if you're native or not, um, which is such a problem as well. Um, and it caused so much problems for this person. It's like, I wished it wasn't COVID so that way I could have went and, and helped this person and, and, and gave them a hug because it's, um, yes. it's disturbing what was done and how quickly it was latched onto by some Canadian media just before the election. Yeah. Um, but this is the type of stuff that's done again. And 
sometimes some of our, our own side will get involved with it too, but sometimes those people tend to also be the ones with the most fragile identity as well. Oh my God, yes. I, uh, I was pretty upset about it. I know, I'm, I think I've talked to you about the struggle I've had internally of um, getting my daughter her status because, you know, the racism I experienced in the health community specifically was, I never want another Indigenous person to um, face that. And there was a piece of me that was like, if she doesn't get her status, then she doesn't get red flagged at the hospitals. And, but at the same time, you and I both know she experiences racism no matter what anyway, uh, was part of the reason why we're now homeschooling. And um, anyway, we finally submitted her paperwork and um, so we put our marriage certificate in there, um, my status number, my um, uh, her birth certificate, all those things, which you and I both know INAC will lose five times before they possibly even get there anyway. So this is like step one of five that I'm going to have to do. Anyway, um, and part of the reason why I wanted her to get her status is because even under the stupid Canadian colonial context, um, while she does qualify, I'm, I'm sad, but that seems to be like the one thing that makes people feel justified in calling people an Indian or not. Um, and I, I don't think that's okay. I wish our chief and councils nationally would like legitimately adopt our people. Um, cause like you were saying that some of your family are different, you know, categories of native and that's the same thing in mine. So, you know, all my aunts, all my, my mother, um, who are native compared to my uncles and my, my male cousins, like we're in totally different categories, totally based off of the patriarchy. And that just pisses me off to no end. And of course, because it just disproportionately affects women in a negative way, my daughter will be one of those that's just, if it wasn't for S3, she wouldn't even qualify. Yeah. If it wasn't for not C31, I wouldn't qualify. But again, this is never a problem and, any of my male um, uncles or male cousins have ever encountered. And the change in 85, like, so it always disadvantaged women and their children who married non-Native men. And 85 didn't fix that. Like, we know that because yeah. it still disadvantages any uh, of those who are born from a female like again my male cousin is a different level of status simply because his father was white and my my aunt married her so not only was she no longer native but he had to be a different level so and it's the same thing as as your daughter right she's a different level because your husband is is not listed in as first nation under right. indian act so even though even though he has even though there there's even though there is indigenous, there is indigenous blood in his background. Um, it just, he's, he may not be connected to a first nation community. And there's, you know, there's that internal debate going on within Métis communities about what Métis mean. And I'm not, I'm not touching that one either. So yeah, no, <laughs> stay away from that one. <laughs> yep, I hear you. But I mean, ultimately this is what's wrong with everything that we're talking about. And, you know, I, I, um, I don't, I hate these identity politics in so many capacities because it really becomes um, like, obviously, I study a lot of fascism and nationalism. And, um, and really, like I see so many parallels by our own people sometimes behaving the way you would see a Nazi behave. And it just pisses me off because it's like we're excluding our own people. 
So the sooner our chiefs and councils go, yes, you are, you are one of ours, like the better. Um, our particular uh, Dene in, in where we're from, like if you are any type of Dene from the territories, then you're considered Yellowknife Métis. So I know at the very minimum, she'll be considered that. I'm just hoping that my Indian Affairs paperwork will work and just go through. But it just sucks because no matter what her choices are, like it's her children will be considered less than than any of my male cousins. And that's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. It pisses me off. But there's not much I can do about it. I try. Um, like you said, we tried to do what we can do. And it feels really shitty when we can't do more, like uh, what happened with Jody Wilson-Raybould. Um, you know, that's a great example where, you know, it sucked being a part of the party and watching this and trying to have discussions with folks. Um, like I was literally on International Women's Day going head to head with Sheila Cops and on, on publicly on Twitter because of what was happening. And I had no voice at the table with what was happening to Jody. And um, again, to me, I thought I was being helpful by explaining to the party and to our loyal uh, followers, this is, this is what's wrong, not necessarily that, but they, they don't know Indigenous issues, they don't understand Indigenous women, and they have their anti-Indigenous bias. And we just well, saw her railroaded. And quite a few that there's people I knew who this it was shocking to see them like I did a lot of unfollowing when the, the Wilson Rabel thing fell out because yes there's going to be there's going to be cabin there's going to be confidentiality things that we're not going to know and I guarantee you you know Wilson Rabel is also a lawyer in, in, in the western sense she's a truth teller from her own nation she also knows how to do the western game in the sense if you have to so i, I would guarantee that in in things she's like oh you're going to do this to me well you need to remember that you're going to lose this this and this because of me so there is that and she's not the first one to do that and she was not, she's never going to be the last one to do that many men do it and there are many non-indigenous women who also do it in, in 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 politics it is a game right you have to you have to play that it is it is negotiations but it's also you know if you do this this is what's going to happen you know and i will make sure it happens because that that's how that's how it works um so there's stuff that i'm sure we don't know about that happened but it's still how it looked and from my own personal experience of what was done by the party the tar and feathering and how some things came out you know it, it looks it looked bad and again i can understand some frustration of probably how it looked in the media and how it was done but then watching some of these people attack her and doing all this stuff because um you know they're they're putting themselves in in their mind but we, we also see how what happened to Jody Wilson-Raybould, which also shows why intersection is, intersectional feminism and why third wave feminism is so important. Um, and I'll, 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 like, I have to be careful talking about that because sometimes I'll get called out for for talking about that because uh, as being a male, I, sh I it, it's, it bugs some people if I talk about that because then I'm being, um, so not, not showing a paternalistic or, or I'm, I'm being very, um, I'm being a mansplainer. Um, I, Which I really negates your two-spirit identity, though, and that is what yeah. kind of pisses me off, because, of course, I know well, you, when, and when I, I, I know what people have yeah. said about you and to you, and it pisses me off, because you're my friend, but also <laughs> because they don't understand two-spirit, two and they don't understand, um, you know, what it's like to be raised in a matriarchy, which you are. Well, and when, when it comes to, when it comes to western theoretical perspectives of feminism if that comes up and i get questioned because of my my maleness um this is when i bring you and 
a good friend of ours into this, uh, who's a lawyer, and another friend of mine who who is a black feminist, because these are the these are it's you guys and, and my mother, my my grandmother, my teachers who I've learned from, and they've all been female. Um, and especially when it comes to, to understandings, more on more in-depth intersectional and third wave feminism understanding, there's a good friend of ours, Naomi, who uh, has helped with a lot of that stuff. And so if I have that question, I'm just like, okay, I'm just repeating what I've I've learned. So if, if it's not okay that I'm saying, I'm like, here, talk to this person. And it, it's fine. It's, it's one of the things why I like being able to be, there's horrible things to being a part of the othered people. But at the same time, how they come back and rally behind you and help, it, 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 there's also a positiveness of being able to be othered with with these with 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 these wonderful people. It's mm-hmm. it's great because there's understanding, there's similarities, and I had to say this once in a class because my mom, my mom always said, you know, um, she'd have she'd have less issue if there was a black woman talking about shared experience to her than a white woman because there's not really a lot of shared experience that black women and her have the same history of dealing with racism but for her it needs to be another indigenous woman or it needs to be an indigenous man because not only is there that racism but there's that colonial history that has to that has to be understood too there's yeah. more similarities there's more of an understanding and and being able to relate like there, there's a number of times like looking at i'm sure you do it with some friends i know we've done it like you, you'll probably see me look over at you if someone says something and you you know right away and we both know like i just i can just be like Mm-hmm. and we'll know that i'm just we're, we're both like yeah th- this is this is going to be an issue like when we saw the title of that one policy up at, at uh, the 2016 winnipeg uh liberal convention it was just like mm, you need to take that down <laughs> um but that's the type of stuff that that happens in it um and um the conversations that happen around it sometimes it's we forget that for indigenous people as well it's 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 not just patriarchal issues that have been imposed but it's also colonial histories and colonial stuff that gets imposed and things like Sheila Cobbs, who I once supported very well, but then you can clearly see that she also, um, she also is the type of person who believes that because she has female anatomy that she can speak for all females because there's no difference between females. When we forget that sometimes white females can just be as horrible as white males when it comes to black women, black men, Native women, Native men, LGBT people, like there is still strong power that is held because of that whiteness. And sometimes that ethnic thing trumps, in some cases, gender. And by that, I mean, I'm not saying that, you know, that that female gender will trump all male gender. I'm, I'm simply saying that, you know, when it comes down to it, white males and white females tend to be at the top. And then there's there's a leverage of how it goes down because of how the structure is. So yes. Um, and, and usually when and all socioeconomic models absolutely um amplify what you're saying and support that so. and and in canadian context who's at the bottom of the hierarchy it's usually indigenous women yes and i would i would argue that it's actually usually at, at the very bottom if we start to include two-spirited lgbt understandings that it is a two-spirited indigenous woman who is at the bottom or more specifically probably a transgender indigenous person um, because we have to take that we have to now realize and remember to take that into consideration we're in a time where we're starting to pay more attention to that which is good it should have been done a lot longer ago but it's things that do kick in because yes i'm male i look white i'm also gay but i guarantee you i've not faced the same level of discrimination that someone who looks stereotypically native who's two-spirited will have faced let alone if they're indigenous women or a transgendered um 
if there's someone who has transitioned from being a, uh, a, a male to a female because it's, it's, it's the right body for them. Um, they're going to face far more. I mean, studies have shown that. And that's sometimes, again, what we don't understand. And when it comes to understanding that two-spirit, again, that's the, the whole question of identity and understanding how our societies work. And uh, this week or this month is International Disability or Indigenous Disability Month. So, you know, if you are Indigenous, Two-Spirit with a disability, like that's where the socioeconomic ring ends is right there. And uh, that's yeah. like the reality. And we don't talk about that enough. And actually, my last podcast was um, uh, Ashley uh so Corey ashley the ashley family um has been undergoing this trauma lillian ashley died at christmas and her husband's left to pick up the pieces so um we talked a bit about that as well but i mean ultimately he is a white man advocating for his indigenous uh wife that died under care here in alberta and um you know it, right. yeah so you know, like the, <laughs> we're we're the ones at the bottom of the scale dying. Um, the office for the advocate for um, uh, the child came out and they put out another report. And of course, they're talking about how disproportionate the opioid crisis is affecting um, apprehended uh, children that are indigenous. And I mean, you and I both know through the inquiry report and the TRC that it, it's a pipeline of killing our people. So, you know, and, and trying to bring this awareness and trying to talk within the party. I mean, I just, there's so many barriers and uh, I will say like, I felt like it was so much more open once upon a time, but I, I just don't feel that now. So I don't know um, how, you know, you talked about the bushy eyed or the, the energy that you have when you first start volunteering and how the excitement and such like, I, I know I never really went into this party with that. Um, I knew you just never trust a colonizer. I knew that. So, you know, here we are. What? <laughs> well, no, I, you, 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 you felt like at the time you, you could have a voice. It, it was something I was, I was proud of, of being a part of a team that did that. We brought in diverse indigenous voices and, you know, it was a shock to the party that, you know, we all didn't think the same way. I'd explain to some people many times that our two members from Alberta were on opposing sides of, the, of a spectrum in a lot of cases. Yep. <laughs> one was very business orientated. The other one was very traditional focused. So that, but that helped us come to a middle ground to be able to have both sides look and, um, when you when you get involved and you start to be part of the process and you're able to do stuff and you see things go you know you're you're you you get um not, I don't want to say nostalgia but you're like oh my god it's amazing like I've done this I've been a part of it mm -hmm. and my policies are going to the front so then you also find yourself that when the party does screw up and it's not doing something that you agree with you'll find little things and ways to be able to say okay uh, as long as I have this to say then I can I can deal with the fact that it didn't do what it should have done and you know I'm upset with it for doing this but um, it, it's it's good if, if this is how I can I can I can say it I can talk about it to people this way because then at least it's it's done this way I I did it um, it, it's what you do because you're at that point because you've committed so much to it that if you stop committing to it you you give up on it then what did you do for all that time that you were committed right um, and it was something that I struggled with for a while looking back on it though that I did a lot and I'm very proud and happy with what I did and I'm very happy that I also stuck. To my to my morals in a lot of cases i'm very happy i did that because not a lot of people do 
Um, and I, not a lot of people survived on doing that. Like it took a long time for yeah. some people to get rid of me. <laughs> and they, it wasn't them who got rid of me. I chose to leave finally because I had had enough. Um, but like originally, I don't know if you knew this, but uh, certain people uh, such as um, a former president of the party actively looked for people to run against me when I ran back the second time. Oh, wow. They were actively looking. Yeah, they were looking. They actively looked to have someone run against me, but I had done all my my due diligence and made sure almost everyone who was involved high profile at a high profile level who was indigenous that they were supporting me mm-hmm. so I started early as you know because I t- talked to you about this yeah. but yeah no they they were not impressed with the idea of me coming back um and the only problem with that although I had the support of a lot of the the indigenous side and some very important MPs and and people involved with the party it still made things difficult over that last term. And that was because I was there. They made things difficult, um, but we still got a lot of stuff done. So although it wasn't as fast and, and quick as we could get, I can happily say that by the, t- by the time that I left, sorry, by the time that I left being involved, the structure of the commission was in the best structure it was even from when I first got involved back in, 20, in 2009, because I came on as the youth rep originally in 2009 for an executive. We had, almost every single position filled when I left in 2018. Um, So if people want to say that I was difficult to work with, I was angry. I was fanatical. uh, I was always, uh, I was combative and not willing to work with people. Um, No, that wasn't the case. I just also didn't have time for bullshit, pardon my language. And I didn't have time to play certain games because I, why am I going to, why am I going to play this game when we're literally dealing with the fact that we have a high suicide crisis rate? We, we have um, Honestly, people who don't Chad, think that they, they, they should like, exist. They're just anti-Indigenous bias and it, it's so prevalent and I, I hate that you have to even explain this. Like, you know what our problems are and just because of somebody's white or uh, settler fragility, you know, like that's not for us to take on, that's for them to own and for them to do their due diligence and learn about indigenous people. Call to Action 57 says all public servants should take anti-racism training and indigenous education. And I have not seen our public servants take that seriously in any division, whether it's politics, health, justice, you know, education, like they're just not doing it. I mean, they're still in that, oh, we're still learning and listening phase. And that means that they're not really doing anything that's accountable to the Indigenous community or any anti-racism policies that have substance. Like like right now in on Twitter, we see an NFL player who's an anti-vaxxer, you know, being a given accommodations. Meanwhile, Colin Kaepernick is still like banned really from the NFL. And I mean, you see that all the time in, in every um division that there is of of society so to me um i just don't know anyway i'll uh i'm gonna wrap us up here and um do our our exit but you are more than welcome to talk about um you know more of those issues yeah go ahead just i i want because we're talking about the different understands of voting but like these are things that kick in at the level of voting becoming looking to become an mp um how long someone stays around and 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 the type of stress and the trauma this is not my story is not a unique one many people have gone through it i know you have uh but you're still you're still going through it right now and you're you're still sticking through because you there's reason for that so i will never condemn people who get involved to do things or do do things better people don't realize sometimes what we go through on the inside uh what candidates go through 
what MPs have to do on the inside. Um, but then, you know, the, we're, we're people who do it because we see it as a way, we see it as one of the many ways to be able to bring change. Um, but for me, it's no longer the way that I can do it. I will participate, I will support. I, because of my commitment to the indigenous wing of the party, I donated to them, but it wasn't the only place that I donated to. Um, I had I had someone who was on my first executive with me, not my my executive, who was on the first executive with me, our our former VP finance during the 2012 to 2014, and she was only around for six months because it got really bad, and she she resigned. She ran for the Greens in Vancouver East, Cheryl Matthews. Um, so of course I was going to support her, and uh, I donated to uh, the NDP commission too, and. <laughs> I donated to one non-Indigenous person, and that's because uh, she's a good friend uh, out here in Quebec, uh, in, in Broussard Saint uh, Saint Lambert. She, I, I will happily give her her her, her uh, funding for for elections because she's a good person. She's a friend, and I believe that people like her need to be in Parliament. Um, but so we get involved because there's a ways to change it. But it's also the pushback we get. So people wonder why we don't we don't get involved. Well, because what I heard was the same thing my predecessors heard, which is what their predecessors heard, and that's what you and other people are hearing now. Unless you follow the party line, unless you are willing to sell out, in my, in my mind, sell out uh, what you're there to do. If you're going to put yourself first over, 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 over our communities, over our, 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 our youth, over the next eight generations, then, and by that I mean all of us, not just, like, I could get involved and toot the horn and do a little playing with, with what's best for my community if I wanted to. But that's not how I I, 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 I I do it. Like, yes, I could have. I could have used my, my, my time and position to specifically benefit my community and go do things and talk about how, you know, it's great to be able to help put Hiawatha first, all the stuff. And But that was not my job. And that was not what I looked to do. And that's not what I, I got involved for. Um, and it's people like people who are putting all of our communities forward and taking that into consideration and wanting to build that relationship, go down that right path together it's so important for, but it's also exhausting. And you have to be able to tag in and tag out with people. You have to have people who can do that. And um, the party structures need to eventually realize that those things, those, the, it's not the same way. And again, remember we were once told that the party, the liberal party should not be a place to have to make some decide between being a liberal or indigenous, that you could be an indigenous liberal. Well, unfortunately, some of us had to make that decision because it was not clear it was it became very clear that it was not that you could be hyphenated that was not something that was acceptable because sometimes being hyphenated meant you had to actually call out and 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 point out to your liberal family that they were doing something wrong and instead of them fixing it they simply sent you off to um an asylum an asylum like an asylum <laughs> so we'll, we'll be said that the victorian the liberals were a victorian family <laughs> um and sent one off but then you also have to take into consideration that there's some who just adamantly will not get involved because it goes against their way of looking at the relationship with Canada, despite the fact Canada influencing and getting involved and impacting our structures, tried to erase it, they still stick by it. And so that's something you have to understand. So some communities will not allow ballot box. Six Nations especially is very opposed to it. Doesn't mean everyone in, in the community doesn't vote. There's other ways of doing it. And sometimes some will drive to go do it, but th it's their way of reminding Canada that there's a nation-nation relationship that needs to be held. And, and reminded and remembered and that it's not just a nation and nation relationship that it is Canada to Haudenosaunee Confederacy, Canada to Anishinaabe, Canada to Cree, Canada Treaty 7, Canada Treaty 11, Canada to Clinkett, Canada to Haida. Um, and then we need to remember as well that 
it's going to be different for Métis. More Métis people seem to be involved and get involved and get elected. Majority of the 13, there are actually 13 Indigenous MPs after this election. That's the highest amount, Michelle. I thought it was down, but um, there's, there's 13, majority of those 13 are Métis MPs. Yeah. Um, and then there's two Inuit. There is someone who is Huron. There is someone who is non-status Cree. There is someone who is um, Nakota from, from what I recall. In. Yeah. Yeah. So this is this is another thing that sometimes people Randy doesn't get included in a lot of stuff. He doesn't claim his stuff, but there's a history there. So that's why, like, I'll say that he is non-status Cree. He has Cree lineage, but it's a search that he has to figure out because uh, it's it's not my place to say. But there's people we need to remember who who's had family who were forcibly taken away from their lineage, and that's a whole other process. So are, are they the same level? This is that conversation that happens again. But then we need to remember as well that there are people out there who will identify as Canadian, they will hyphenate themselves as Canadian, uh, being Indigenous Canadian if they want to. And that's okay, some will do that. Some are more comfortable with that. They will look at themselves as Canadian first or they will want to be a part of it, more integrated with it, that's gonna happen. It's conversations that need to be allowed to be ha have and realize that it's not a one size fits all when it comes mm -hmm. to participation or voting. Yeah, 100%. I really appreciate you coming on. It's so hard because you and I can talk for two, three hours straight. And before I know it, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe how much time I've taken. And I know you are ridiculously busy and I so appreciate you being on. And I know you're going to have an exhausting term coming up. So just know how much I miss you and appreciate you being on my show. Thank you for having me. And I apologize for if we went too long, but I wanted to finish off with exactly how I finished. <laughs> <laughs> No, never feel bad and, and come back on anytime, especially if you publish another paper or, um, you know, go on a, on a talk show or whatever that you want to really discuss an issue that maybe you never got a chance to really do the meat and bones of it because, of course, we have to accommodate settler um, lack of understanding. <laughs> anyway, I will, I will always I will always happily talk with you. And uh, yeah, there's I, I'm actually working on two different chapters for two different books now. So <laughs> and oh, my, my dissertation, so, you know, yay, that's great news. I can't wait for to see your published books. I was going to talk to you about that. But I thought maybe I'd do it off air because I think we need to collaborate on something. Anyway, we'll talk later about that. Sure. <laughs> Thanks. Um, miigwech, miigwech for having me. Oh, honored, honored. Um, I'm proud this podcast has given solutions and included cultural safety training, cultural first aid, and all of them to create a safer space for Indigenous people of color, those with disabilities, and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. Uh, thank you to Cheryl Ward, Chelsea Branch, and Alicia Fridkin of heretohelp.dc.ca for what is Indigenous cultural safety and why I should care about it. Uh, their work, along with uh, many other Indigenous voices, you know, these, these are cultural action tools that I've said hundreds of times in my podcast, so I support Indigenous work, and I encourage folks in their reconciliation work and settler understanding to start understanding these things. Um, I'm just lucky enough to highlight and repeat them here. Internalized racism, lateral violence, internalized uh, hate is another form of violence, Indigenous and marginalized experienced by the structure of oppression imposed on these lands. Uh, RacialEquityTools.org has a part about internalized racism by Donna Bevins, but if, uh, if you were to Google uh, internalized uh, oppression, racism, you would find all sorts of different 
um, text and conversations about that as well. Uh, do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends Service Committee. So this is things that you could do if you saw, say, a Muslim woman being harassed on a public uh, transit system. Here in Alberta, we actually have a great resource of actandracism.ca, or you can text at 587-507-3838 and get the information of what to do when you encounter racism. Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas and reports, commissions and public hearings, just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more, honor our words, honor the treaties, listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize marginalized with their budget, with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, immigrants, and folks with disabilities, know that your votes to that party or person negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple re reports about child welfare reform, uh, violence prevention, and now we have 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting, our people are experiencing extreme racism in the justice, educational, and health institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand changes from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties, politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. Uh, another article uh, that you can Google is how non-Indigenous Canadians become allies. You know, there's so many articles on it now, so I highly encourage folks to Google it. If you're experiencing emotional distress after hearing anything we've talked about today, there's a First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you can also uh, go onto their website at hopeforwellness.ca where there's a text box. Uh, if more related to missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit, you can call 844-413-6649. And if you're non-Indigenous, you can call the distress center lines in your area. There's usually a functioning 211, or you can call 833-456-4566. And if you're in Alberta and you're a 60 Scoop survivor, you can go to ssisa.ca and hashtag survivor driven is the uh, you know call to action there. Another organization I support is the Trevor Project. They have some wonderful resources for all LGBTQ2+, whether you're trans, whether you're youth, whether you're a peer, and you can call 1-866-844-7386. And if you're in Canada and you're a youth, you can call the Kids Help phone at 1-800-668-6868 if you go to lifevoice.ca, there's tons of LGBTQ2 plus crisis supports there too. Violence is my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast to speak freely without interruption, tone police, leadership shaming, gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear Indigenous opinion, but sure want to tell us theirs. By people who know nothing about Indigenous, colonialism, constant surveillance of our people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. Typical microaggressions, people dealing with internalized oppression, people who are gatekeepers or survive off the status quo, folks who are in their trauma and stop people from doing the work and deplete personal resources. 
Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. I started this podcast as a boundary to be heard, but also for Indigenous representation, as we don't get to hear enough Indigenous voices. And when we do, it's usually um, vetted through funding. So if the government of Canada or the government of Alberta is giving the funding, then suddenly people have to say things they may not feel comfortable saying. To my ancestors, my granny, my mom of what strength looks like through your example, I want to thank my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt, my stepmom for showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her I'm a second generation proud Calgarian, but native Calgarian is named as a spoof because when anybody calls them and themselves a native whatever colonial name entered here, it's usually sounding very racist if you're non-Indigenous. So something to think about. And it also um, shows me your lack of understanding of land acknowledgement. Anyway, thank you to my husband, Darcy, for producing and editing the show on top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child and support down my journey of the Red Road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. To our child who we are blessed to learn from daily, we are honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of me trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian where you can pledge and support. Thank you to my previous donors for showing your support. If you value listening or watching and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com. Send in your comments or your questions. I also have a YouTube channel that you can go and subscribe and you can go to nativecalgarian.com for the latest podcasts. And if you go to my social media, all the pin posts have it. So I want to end by giving side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not your dish. And my beautiful cousin would respond or you'd be in my dish. Thank you so much for listening.